chick flicks, romantic comedies, rom-coms. You love them, you hate them, but we are here to eviscerate them. Welcome to the Rom-Com Killjoys podcast. We are your hosts, Eliza Bertrand and Janelle Walker. Now, let's get on with some feminist joy killing. This is blatant Juliet Capulet erasure, and I will not have it. Welcome to Rom-Com Killjoys. This is blatant, terrible writing, and I will not have it. Hi, Janelle. Hi, Eliza. Are you ready to destroy a film that means a great deal to a friend of ours who shall remain nameless for now? Let's destroy a film that means a great deal to a good friend of ours who will remain nameless for now. (laughs) Guys, welcome back to the podcast. This week, we are talking about our Patreon-picked movie, which was mostly picked because a good friend of ours really loves this movie and really wants us to talk about it, and we really hate it. I just, I feel like I have to contextualize, especially for some of our newer listeners, that like, let's be very clear. I wrote my undergraduate thesis on stage violence in the, the Shakespearean tragedies. Eliza and I were, respectively, the artistic and executive directors of a university-level Shakespeare company. We were the kids who would sit on the quad and play Fuck, Mary Kill with Shakespeare characters. For fun. This goes deep. This is gonna go deep. Let's be clear. We have strong feelings. Janelle and I literally only know each other because we're in this Shakespeare troupe together. Troupe, with an E. (laughs) So, um, So, yeah, anything that is going to make reference to... I would say the most popular and well-known and beloved of all of Shakespeare's plays, even if it only makes reference in passing and in the title, we're gonna have to talk about it. Yeah, so uh, gird your loins, gird your codpiece. We're about to to come down hard with some Shakespearean knowledge, y'all. Janelle, tell us about Letters to Juliet. Oh, God help us. Okay, Letters to Juliet, the year of our Lord, 2010. Here's your Google summary. While visiting Verona, Italy with her busy fiancé, a young woman named Sophie, played by Amanda Seyfried, visits a wall where the heartbroken leave notes to Shakespeare's tragic heroine, Juliet Capulet. Finding one such letter from 1957, Sophie decides to write to its now elderly author, Claire, played by Vanessa Redgrave. Inspired by Sophie's actions, Claire sets out to find her long-lost lover, accompanied by her disapproving grandson, played by Christopher Egan. And young Sophie. Ah, well, Eliza, that's what Google says this movie's about. But like, what wouldst thou say Letters to Juliet is really about, forsooth? (sighs) Janelle, I honest to God don't know. Like, I watched the whole movie and I don't know what they were trying to accomplish other than make something that is technically a romantic comedy, <laughs> which I guess they did, but like only, only very technically because <laughs> I didn't find it comedic or romantic. Yeah, that's a really good point. There is, there is not a lot of comedy. I mean, young Christopher Egan playing Charlie brings us a few moments of levity uh, to vary things up, but for the most part, it's pretty uh, romance novel-y, no offense to our friend Kate Kearns, but it has a very clear romantic trajectory more than anything else yes. but let's talk about that idea of being like a technical rom-com like what does it do to technically be a rom-com this movie has rom-com beats sprinkled throughout the movie but seems to have been written 
by people who have no understanding of what makes rom-com beats work. Let's start right at the beginning of the movie. We have the typical rom-com setup of our female romantic lead is engaged to the wrong guy. The wrong guy is more focused on his work than he is on his fiance, And that is why you know he is the wrong guy and she will soon meet the right guy. Okay, fine. We've had that set up a million times. It often comes across as a little cheesy or a little obvious, but there are movies that absolutely make this work. There are even movies that make it work okay. In this, before they get married, they are going on a trip to Italy. Everyone keeps asking, um, I've never heard of a pre-honeymoon. Yes, you have. It's called vacation. Why are we making this weirder than it is? (laughs) (laughs) The reason they are going on a trip to Italy is not because they felt like they needed to go on a trip to Italy. It's because her fiancé is about to open a restaurant in New York, which he is apparently only supplying with authentic Italian suppliers. Expensive and confusing, but sure, let's buy the premise. And so they are going to Italy so he can meet with suppliers. His fiancé is then repeatedly frustrated that they're having to spend time meeting with his suppliers, even though that was the point of the trip. What's more, he has arranged for private tours of wineries and cheese-making places and old Italian farms where they're being fed bruschetta and wine and cheese and bread. And she's bored and annoyed. And I was like, bitch, move aside. I will absolutely go on this wine tour for you. I cannot understand why you're so... She's like, I want to see the, you know, the country that we've come to visit. Like, what do you think you're doing? People pay thousands of dollars to do what you're doing. (laughs) This is what visiting Italy is like. And I also want to say that it's not included in the summary, but her fiancé is played by the fantastic Mexican actor Gael Garcia Bernal, who is incredibly handsome. And he's in a totally different movie than everyone else, and I kind of love it. He's, like, in a frenetic 1930s, like, travelogue film, and I'm obsessed. He's on a completely different plane of existence, and I want to be there, too. Yeah, and, like, the only reason the two of them don't seem to work is because she seems uninterested in him. Like, I honestly, none of their scenes together did I think he was behaving in a way that was bad. Like, yes, he's doing the, you know, the rom-com shorthand of he's more focused on work than on her, but he kept, like, wanting her to try his food and wanting to take her to go talk to suppliers. Like, for someone who was focused on work, I thought he was doing a pretty good job of trying to include her, and she was just kind of being a bitch about it. Listen, so I I have several thoughts about this. First, as we talked about in our chef episode, ladies, if you want a partner who's going to be with you all the time and is going to like the things that you do and never work, don't date a chef. I can tell you from experience. (laughs) Two, it's really strange that the, the fault the movie puts on their relationship is really with him, even though you're right. From the jump, it's very clear that the problem with their relationship is that neither one of them are that interested in the other. So you kind of get confused as to why they got engaged in the first place. (laughs) So again, I have to come back to this idea of like, ladies, if you're an upstart writer, like um, some people I know, the idea of marrying a a creative person in a different field, like let's say culinary arts, seems like a very appealing idea. Um, It's not. Don't do it. uh, Because this is what happens. Meanwhile, at the same time, they've set up the problem in this relationship being he doesn't pay enough attention to her, he's too focused on work. She then meets a guy and ostensibly falls in love with him who she only knows while he is on vacation. We have no idea if he's going to be hyper-focused on work when they return home. We have no idea what his life is like. We have no idea how the two of them operate as professionals together. So we do not get a conclusion to the initial setup problem. 
we get a conclusion to a different movie. Yeah, and, and what's funny is I was thinking about this exact issue, Eliza, that the script has, where the, the framing of it, which we will get to, don't worry, listeners, we're going to get to the whole Shakespeare conundrum. The whole <laughs> setup of, the, of the, the framing is the idea that there's this idea of true love, destined love, star-crossed mm-hmm. lovers, right? Which is a phrase we get from Shakespeare, from Romeo and Juliet specifically. But if the film is trying to propose that Sophie and Charlie are star-crossed lovers, they don't do a great job of it because no. when they meet each other, they're more of like a Benedict and Beatrice situation where they like snipe at each other and they just happen to be in the same place at the same time, which is a fine story, but it's certainly not star-crossed lovers or even really this notion of fate. I mean, I guess she 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 wrote his grandmother a letter. Like she kind of crossed over the void. So it doesn't have that same sort of faded quality to it, I don't think. Yeah, I also have a problem with their setup as the bickering couple, because that's also Mm -hmm. a thing. You know, even if you just trace it back to Shakespeare, we can trace it right back to Benedict and Beatrice. Um, But it's a thing that's so common in romantic stories, uh, comedic and otherwise, and normally a thing that I quite like. You know, I'm I'm a Ron and Hermione girl all the way, right? But there needs to be a reason that the couple bicker or that the couple don't like each other they can't Mm. enter their first scene already not liking each other and that's what happens in this he walks in and he's just like uh you're the girl who's ruined my life and she's like uh you're the asshole guy who i now have to deal with and i was like first of all you don't have to deal with him you could let him leave the room uh, and second of all, he seems very angry at something that really he shouldn't be particularly angry at. And then they just continue to be annoyed at each other. And you're like, I just don't buy that enough has happened for you to have made these decisions that the other one is the asshole. I think actually you're both just assholes. Yeah, you're so right. They're both like ardently stubborn about different and contradictory things. And yet somehow the film at some point manages to just sort of be like, oh, no, never mind. They actually are in love with each other. I don't think there's ever a moment where we're convinced of their love or we're given a reason to see it, really. It just sort of happens in a bar one night. It's weird. Because they don't have actual reasons for not getting along, they also don't have actual reasons for then fixing that problem, right? Like, mm-hmm. they, it's, I guess, ostensibly, he's frustrated that she wants to take his grandmother on this sort of whirlwind romantic notion, and then by the end, he's bought into the notion. But you kind of are then told by the grandmother, like, no, he's really a romantic at heart. And you're like, okay, so then why is he being annoyed by this? And, you know, she's just frustrated that he's combative towards her. And then she just stops being frustrated by his personality. Like, there's not a moment where they come together and have a discussion that actually fixes their problems or where they have to, like, get through some sort of a challenge, you know, like we had Mm. with Chasing Liberty, where they're constantly having to team up to overcome things. Like, that's not really what's happened either. They just kind of spend a week together and during that week get more used to each other. (laughs) And, and, you know, hearing you say this, I'm realizing this is yet another example of a guy you meet on Vacation Story where the guy actually has quite (laughs) a lot of red flags because... What we're told as an explanation for Charlie's, like, frankly, incredibly rude behavior bursting into the secretaries of Juliet office to basically yell at Sophie is that, oh, well, darling, you know, he lost his parents. It's very traumatic. That is traumatic. But you know what's not okay? To use your trauma as a reason to berate people you don't know. That's not okay. Um, And it's a red flag. If you're not, if you're in an, an adult phase of your life, 
and you're an attorney and you are, you know, pretty much putting yourself together in life and you have resources, you have no excuse not to go to therapy and get some help and some resources <laughs> to handle your trauma in a way that doesn't impinge on the right of others to pursue their happiness, you know? And I think in the long term, that relationship is going to need a lot of work if he's going to get his sort of... Um, uh, flashbang trauma responses under control. Yeah, well, and there's like this one moment where they talk about what he does for work, and I think that they put that in to try to make him seem like softer or more likable because he says he does like international social justice law or something like that. But he mm-hmm. says it where he like leans back in his chair and he puts a smirk on and he's like, oh, did you think I was just some corporate lawyer? I do social justice law. I help people. And <laughs> I gotta tell you, I I was not endeared to him in that moment. That didn't make me like him more. I was like, oh, no, you're exactly the asshole I thought you were. Um, You're just trying to be holier than thou about it. So, you know, like, they keep having all these things that are supposed to be these moments where the two of them come together and have, like, a realization about how much they have in common, except that they don't have anything in common and none of those moments seem compelling to me yeah no no he's just kind of a jerk you're right you're 100 right and i also was really in that same vein was really amused at the point when they were talking about romeo and juliet and he was like well who wrote romeo and juliet you say it's an italian story but who wrote it william shakespeare of england uh he's english in case you you didn't miss that uh and uh it really gave me a a great moment because i was like you know what he's gonna say that and then later he's gonna make some like hilariously uh, misappropriated Shakespeare reference, isn't he? And boy, did he, guys. Oh. Boy, did he not reference the gaslighting poem that everybody loves to quote from Hamlet. You know, doubt not the stars are fire, never doubt my love. Okay. Nice. Cool. You passed freshman year Shakespeare. Congratulations. I was half expecting him to pull out the some are born great and some have greatness thrust upon them. <laughs> Um, which, for those who don't know, is often used as a way to inspire, but is in a scene where an idiot character is making a bunch of sexual references. So it's not quite the inspiring quote that people think it is, but that's the kind of thing I expected to come out of his mouth. There was also the bit where he was saying, he's not like Romeo. Okay, we've got a new, she's not like other girls and he's not like Romeo. Because he wouldn't have just whispered some sweet nothings from the ground up to the balcony. He would have grabbed what he wanted and taken it. And I was like, is he really accusing Romeo of not acting on impulse enough? What is the, there's a lot, there is a series of lines. And I know I'm about to go deep here, guys. But I was thinking, I was reading back up on the balcony scene for this episode. There is a series of lines in that scene, in the text, where, uh, where Romeo says, your kinsmen are no stop to me. And she says, if they do see thee, they will murder thee, right? So he's there under the threat of death, you guys, like <laughs> literal death. Oh, he says, alack, there lies more peril in thine eye than 20 of their swords. Look down, but sweet, and I am proof against their enmity. He literally says, I'll die, bet. Let them kill me. <laughs> And you're saying that guy's not doing anything? He climbed into that garden under threat of death, Charlie. Charlie. Claiming that Romeo doesn't, like, go after love when he sees it. Like, he literally slept with her and married her within three days, and then they both died because the threat of death was real, right? Like, why would you choose this framework of constantly referencing Romeo and Juliet and never have any concept of what you're referencing? And Eliza, I think that that all encapsulates for me because I have been enraged about this since high school when I was, you know, back when I was feeling like a cool girl, 
Um, I've been reformed from that now. But back then, I, I had a very strong hatred for a certain song that makes a you know, very prominent appearance in this film. Janelle, you and I had that in common in high school. <laughs> and I want to formally apologize to Taylor Swift for all of the shitty things I said about her when I was a teenager and for not admitting that Love Story is an absolute bop. However, the dramaturgy's bad, Taylor. I support you. You're great and everything. The dramaturgy is bad. You do not want Romeo to take you away. That does not end well. No, it doesn't. And also, like, your daddy didn't say stay away from Juliet. Literally your whole extended family. We're talking about hundreds of years of political strife, Taylor. It goes deep. It's deep. Okay. But, but it's okay, because at the end, the dad says, yeah, you can you can marry her, um, because it's the end of the song, so it's time for me to, you know change up my tune. This movie was inspired by a book that was written by a bunch of women about the Juliet Club, this group of women who do in fact respond to lovelorn letters from people under the guise of being from Juliet of Verona. However, if you're going to base an entire fictional story around a Romeo and Juliet setup, if you're going to give it a framework of we're talking about Romeo and Juliet, we're going to Verona, we're going to Juliet's balcony, we're going to end with a balcony scene, you need to have some reference to Romeo and Juliet in the plot beyond just two people are in love. That is not a reference to Romeo and Juliet. That is a reference to every story ever. <laughs> yeah, I feel like... um. To pull in a, a semi-academic phrase here, people use this in the, the common discourse also, but um, this movie is a really good example of uh, what's called the public imagination. Mm. Uh, this film is a really good reflection of the role that Romeo and Juliet as a play, as a story structure, as a kind of myth, plays in the popular and public imagination. You know, there's a balcony, you know, the lovers are young, you know, they can't be together for some reason you know, they get together at some reason. And yet somehow their tragic, like, suicides don't make it into the popular imagination, weirdly. Like, sometimes it does, but people are really quick to ignore that part of it, which is kind of interesting. Um, but there's a lot of things from the original text that get left out of that popular imagination. And this film and the whole practice of the letters to Juliet that happen in real life do exactly the same thing. I mean, writing letters to Juliet to ask her for romance advice is a little bit like, ladies, I have something to tell you. <laughs> She she died after her first boyfriend got banished. For it didn't go so good. Cousin. Is it any wonder she made terrible romantic decisions? Do you know anyone who made good romantic decisions at the age of 13? Do you know anyone who, <laughs> if they had made their romantic decisions in the year like 1500 instead of in 2000, would have also potentially ended in death? Because I do. I for sure do. <laughs> I mean, like... <laughs> On the one hand, like, I understand I sort of the impulse that like, yeah, I mean, Juliet went big with her choices. But like, <laughs> you're right. Like, in this day and age, I don't think like, listen, let's say let's go back to the 14th century in Verona, your new husband who no one knows you're married to kills your cousin, really sucks, then gets banished from the city. This is a problem. So what do you do? Like any self respecting Italian woman, you fake your own death. Now listen, if you tried to do that today, I don't know that it's going to have the same effect. And so I'm not quite sure what you're looking for when you write to Juliet, except for, as Eliza said, um, imminent death, uh, tragic endings. Uh, I don't know. Uh, family therapy. I don't know. That's not to say that there is not 
romance in Romeo and Juliet, the play. There absolutely is. There's a reason that it has endured for so long. There's something really entrancing about characters who just follow their desires and their loves. And the language is beautiful. Like mm-hmm. the romance language in Romeo and Juliet is truly wonderful and has inspired hundreds of years of stories. I'm not trying to downplay that. But just saying that Romeo and Juliet is a romance is categorically wrong. It is a tragedy by definition. So it is a very strange model for a romantic comedy, especially as as we've alluded to, most modern romantic comedies can trace their plots back to either a actual Shakespeare romantic comedy or a Jane Austen romantic comedy. Mm -hmm. So it seems funny that like, you're going to take one of the high tragedies as your model instead of say a uh, a romp in the Italian countryside based on, I don't know, uh, all's well that ends well. Why not? Right. Like there are other Shakespeare's that you could base it on if what you wanted was a Shakespeare based story. And let's be real. That's not what this movie wanted. But at the same time, and I think this might be a good place to transition into talking about our theme for the month, which is travel. Technically, what this movie wanted was to be a movie about falling in love in Italy. But I would argue that it also does not hold well, hold water well as a travel movie. I think from the start, they miss the, the beats that make the travel magic happen. You know, like I said, there's this whole bit where she's traveling around with her fiance through the Tuscan countryside, going to mm. wine tastings, and there's no magic. And there's no beautiful shots of the country other than just like the requisite shots of them in a car driving. There's no like moments where they're savoring the wine. I mean, her fiance is doing it like in the background sometimes while she's rolling her eyes, but like it doesn't have those beats. You know, even um, you, blah, blah, blah. even Eat, Pray, Love had, you know, that scene where she's just like eating all of the pasta. And yes, they were playing German music in the background, but the idea, the like cinematic idea of that was there, of that like love for being in a new place and experiencing it. And I just felt that beat after beat after beat, they missed the opportunities to embrace the travel magic. And I I gotta say, I'm gonna be that annoying girl who studied abroad in Italy for a moment, and I apologize. (laughs) But I'm also going to be a film major here, right? Like, I'm actually approaching this from a film standpoint, not from a I lived in Italy standpoint. There is a scene where they're in Siena, in the Piazza del Campo in Siena, which is like the main plaza. They literally, they filmed on location, you can tell, and I looked it up, they did film on location. And the two of them are eating ice cream in ice cream cones. I, it's it's not supposed to be gelato and it just is in a it's like straight up giant scoops of ice cream in american <laughs> sugar cones the props department had to make that happen because you can't buy that on the piazza del campo right you you it is literally like you could walk 10 feet from where they're sitting and be at a gelateria where you would get gelato in a little cup or like a little cone with a little plastic square spoon. Anyone who's been to Italy knows exactly what I'm talking about. In fact, a lot of gelaterias here in America do the same thing. Why are they not eating gelato? Why would you not have them eating gelato or sipping espresso or eating on a biscotti? Like, if you're going to make this is the moment where the two of them are finally having like a romantic connection and they're in the middle of a beautiful ancient medieval Italian city, why would you not have them eating something that is like undeniably recognizably Italian food? Eliza, that's an incredibly good question. And I feel like it's actually like the perfect encapsulation of what I think might have happened with the development of this screenplay, which is that 
a rom-com plot was forced into a much more beautiful and magical, like, travel through the Italian countryside. And this is an example Mm -hmm. of that, right? Like, they had to force this fucking ice cream into this scene, even though it has no right to be there. Just like this rom-com plot has no right to be there. And here's why I think this. So, one of the credited screenwriters for this film is the amazing playwright, Jose Rivera. He is not the only screenwriter, though. Being familiar with his work, here's what I suspect. What I suspect was that initially, the plot of this movie was more focused on Claire and her search for her former love, Mm -hmm. Lorenzo Bartolini, because that is actually the romantic story here. That is the most romantic story here. And like, I'm sure there was a version of this script before where we actually learned a lot more about their youth together in Italy and like their separation and her search for him. I mean, the idea that you would go searching through the countryside and meeting every Lorenzo Bartolini is like such a beautifully magical realist idea that is so characteristic of Jose Rivera's work that I have to believe that that was his initial pass Mm -hmm. at this. And then somebody came in and was like, nah, we need to market this as a rom-com. So uh, (laughs) where are my young blonde white people? Put them in here, make them eat some ice cream. Make them hit each other in the face with the ice cream for God knows what reason. So weird. Make them blonder than either one of them actually is because I've never seen Amanda Seyfried so blonde in her entire body of work. I think I would have liked to have seen the version of this movie, like you said, that is more appreciative of Italian culture, more true to Italian experience, more in love with Italy, having it be this place of like love and passion that Claire experiences as mm-hmm. a young woman. That would have been gorgeous. Yeah, you could have taken this plot and only changed the location names, changed nothing else in the script and just put it in France or in England or in California or in Japan, right? Like there's nothing about what they're doing that is specific to Italy, except that they just keep saying the names of Italian places and that the guy's name is Lorenzo Bartolini. Like they they could have just changed it to, you know, Pierre Le Creuset and put it in (laughs) France and it would have been the exact same plot. And there were just all these moments that were strange that, again, felt like this this was a camel. This was written by committee, right? Like it just it there, you know, there's the scene where she first goes to the Juliet wall where there's a little balcony up there and, you know, whatever. And there's all these shots of women weeping as they write these letters before they tape (laughs) into the wall. And one guy standing next to the Juliet statue and feeling up her boobs. And I was like, are these the two genders? (laughs) <laughs> tragic love story and feeling up her boobs yes <laughs> like, what what was the point this was such a strange way to introduce this and and she's like hearing the inner voices of all of the women as they're writing and sobbing as they're writing these letters and it's like is she magic can she read minds like she hadn't even gone up and read any of the letters yet she just instantly knew upon happening upon this plaza that all of these women were writing tear tearful heartfelt letters asking for Juliet's help like how how did she know that you know it's all these things that you were like if you'd thought about this for one more second you could have just rewritten the scene in a way that makes sense Mm-hmm. You know, there's there's a line early on when she's talking about the fiance and they're establishing that he's not the right guy where someone says, like, you don't have a ring. And she was like, oh, well, he's just been so busy with the restaurant that I told him not to worry about the ring. And I was like, he was he's been so busy that you told him not to buy a ring. 
Yes. There are so many small moments like this where they clearly wrote in lines after the fact for exposition. And you're right. Mm -hmm. Like you think about them for two seconds and they just are terrible. There's another really good example of this in the scene where Charlie first arrives. He bursts into the offices of the daughters of, or the secretaries of Juliet. And, you know, great concept for a scene. He bursts in. It's very dramatic. High stakes. Um, but he comes in and he's like, who wrote this letter? Blah, 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 blah. Like, I, I like have to talk to the woman who wrote this letter. And then there's clearly this moment where they're like jumbling shots together and doing some like after recording like voiceover where Charlie's like, I, I came as soon as I got the letter. And then Sophie goes, wow, that got there fast. I only wrote it a week ago. And you're like, we didn't, you didn't need to clarify this, guys. <laughs> he also it clarifies wasn't a problem. that they got the letter because they're an old English family. So they still live in the same house that she lived in. Why did we need we, we didn't need the explanation, babes. We did not. We didn't need it. <laughs> yeah, no, it really, it, there were all these moments that you were like, I'm sure someone, when they suggested this moment, thought it would be really great, but there was no effort to to smooth any of it over. There are also several moments where the characters do things that if you're familiar with like screenwriting or playwriting and how to motivate characters to do things, like literally don't make sense. They have no motivation to do the thing. They have no prompting and they're not using what's called a tactic, right? They're not trying to do something with the action. They're just doing it because as Eliza said before we started recording, the beat demands that they do so. <laughs> it's, it's like in the scene in Robin Hood Men in Tights when Robin misses the, um, the arrow shot and he's like, wait, I get another shot. And they all go, what? He gets another shot? And they pull out their scripts and flip through their scripts. And they go, oh, yes, he does. He does. Right. It felt like like there's a scene where Charlie comes into Sophie's room at the hotel they're staying at so that the two of them can have an awkward moment and then she can ask him to leave. There's no reason he comes into the room. He doesn't come in with any question for her or to complete a conversation they were having earlier. He basically just walks in and waits for her to be like, please leave. He doesn't knock. He doesn't whatever. And I felt like before he entered the room, he was standing on the other side of the door looking at his script and it said, Charlie goes to Sophie's room. Oh, I guess I should do that. There's um, there's also two great moments of this with uh, Charlie and Sophie too. Uh, one of which being, uh, I told Eliza, amused me greatly, which is the scene where um, our supposedly hardened and jaded Charlie is laying in the grass and staring <laughs> up at the sky. Why? We don't know. It doesn't matter. The beat demands that he does it. And uh, then Sophie comes to lay down next to him in the grass. Why does she do that? We don't need to know. The beat demands it. Then they kiss. It's a good kiss. But then Sophie just sort of like pulls away and robotically sits up and walks away with no additional dialogue like they forgot to write the rest of the scene. And it's so awkward, like incredibly awkward. It's so strange. And I would argue that kiss is the best chemistry they have in the whole movie. Easy. The moments before and after the kiss, not the best chemistry they have in the whole movie. And then it like pulls out so that you see him alone lying in this grass. And he's lying 10 feet away from where this hotel has a pool with a bunch of like lounge chairs. And if they just, I feel like, put him on the other side of the building where there wasn't the pool right next to him and they pulled out, <laughs> you wouldn't be like, wait, why is he lying in the grass? You'd just go along with it. But because you instantly see lounge chairs like 10 feet from where he is, you're like, why is he in the grass? It's... Okay. My <laughs> ultimate favorite version of this, though, is the end of the movie when they're at um, Lorenzo and Claire's wedding. And Claire reads Sophie's letter and, le and Sophie is very overcome emotionally. So she just gets up and she runs away. Like she hikes up her skirts and she runs off, which first of all, friends, 
if you're at someone else's wedding, don't run out dramatically. I love after all the shots given of everyone watching her leave, like the whole wedding. Yeah, everyone's like, okay, whatever. <laughs> but my favorite thing about this is that she has no reason to dramatically run out like that. It's just because the beat demands that she do so. She could have sat there. We could have cut to a scene later at the reception and it would have had the same effect. But no, she has to run out dramatically hiking up her skirts. And I think it's because Taylor Swift does this in the video for Love Story. And I think they were basically trying to recreate it. Anyway, so where does Sophie go, friends? Does she go to a bathroom to collect herself? No, she reappears at a fucking balcony. You guys, why? (laughs) Um, Janelle, because this is about Romeo and Juliet. Eliza, I am so angry, especially because I think there's another <laughs> misconception about Romeo and Juliet that you know, and I'm just reiterating for our audience for the people who may not remember, is that people tend to, again, in the popular imagination and the public imagination of Romeo and Juliet, they seem to think that the balcony scene is the culminating romantic gesture. Y'all, that happens in act two. Act two. <laughs> that is the beginning of the play. It's the second romantic scene they have together. It is not the climax. The climax is when they die. So I really, really hate when people reappropriate this scene for a climax because it's not written to be that way. Stop it's it. not even the climax of their romantic story, which I would no. argue is later on when they're having the um it was the lark, it was the dove, it was the yes. you know conversation, right? Like, After their first night together, it's so romantic. Right, because that's when they're truly in love and they're having this moment where they don't want to go apart from each other. The balcony scene is him basically sneaking into her backyard and yelling up at her window, hey, hey, can I get your digits? And she's like, yeah, but you got to leave because my brother's going to kill you. Like, that <laughs> that's what that scene is. It's not the moment where he's like, my love, marry me, because it's, it's not what happens. Nope. Um, but yeah, no, she runs up to this balcony that happens to be there because it's a spot where if he leaves the wedding as well, he'll instantly see her. I, um, so that he, <laughs> he can run after her. It just, and Janelle, we have to talk about the worst line I've ever <laughs> heard delivered in any movie ever. So oh he God. professes his love. He explains, oh no, my date here at the wedding is my cousin, not my ex-girlfriend because we just needed one more. They just happen to have the whatever. same name? That's a whole it's, thing? Why did y'all do whatever. that? Uh, okay. And she's like, oh my God, I love you. And then he, this man who has been like, I don't do romantic gestures, decides to climb up the side of the building, up the vine, so that he can kiss her on the balcony. It took her one second to get up there. She could just come down the stairs. Like, it'd be fine. But no, he's got to climb up. And they're about to kiss. And oh no, the vine breaks. And he falls backwards a story and a half, (laughs) flat on his back in front of the entire wedding party. Because, of course, uh, so she runs down to make sure he's okay. And she crawls over him. (laughs) I can't even. She's like, can you move? And he goes, only my lips. I I screamed so loudly. My roommate came into the room. She was like, what is wrong? I left my body. (laughs) It was so terrible. And I like, I couldn't not picture because it was such a parallel. The scene in Princess Bride after they roll down the mountain. And Harry Ellis climbs over to Robin Wright and is like, can you move, my darling? And she goes, you're alive. If you want, I could fly. Which is a, like a very cheesy line, but it works in that moment. The swelling music and the love story that we've had built up to this moment and the way she delivers it. You're like, yes, that was fucking romantic. This was not. This was creepy and weird. 
Because also, like, you have a moment where you're like, but does that does that mean he's a quadriplegic now and she's just, like, <laughs> laying on top of him when he needs medical assistance? Right. Is he literally just moving his lips and, the, and, like, his arms are flat at his side and his neck can't push forward at all? Like, he's just like... Mm-hmm. I would like to take this moment to apologize to our friend who shall remain nameless. Uh, we love you very much. We do, and we're so sorry. Um... I'm sure there there are many things to love about this movie. I think 90% of them are Vanessa Redgrave, but mm-hmm. you know, uh, yeah, I don't get it. Love you. And the Vanessa Redgrave story, it's really lovely, um, but it's just not given enough time. And I feel like they mm-hmm. could do a lot with it. You know, I was thinking about the whole thing is that she met this guy when she was a teenager and she wrote him this letter because she never you know, came back to meet him um, when they were supposed to. And then they reconnect when she's in her 60s or 70s and almost instantly decide to get married again and I thought like there's a really great conversation to be had here about the similarities in approach to romance when you're young versus when you're old yes yes. right because like if they'd met again when they were 35 they'd have to date and they'd have to figure out if their lives worked together and they'd have to deal with each other's you know 10-year-old kids and they'd have to whatever and instead they're meeting at a time in their life where they're like I just want to be happy I want things to be simple let's get married fuck it we're both gonna die in a few years right like and I don't mean that to be you know blithe about it like I think that there's something really beautiful about that about the way that an elder couple can make a decision quite easily because they truly know who they are and they truly know what they want and their lives have reached a simpler place where they can just say like yeah let's do this and there's a lot there that's similar to the way that teenagers don't necessarily think about the future. They just go for things. And I was mm-hmm. like, this is so cool. There's such a beautiful parallel here. And I feel like Vanessa Redgrave could do so much with this. And they just don't really, they're like, oh yeah, they're getting married. Oh, I know. This is, this is exactly, what, yeah, you're so right. And like, that is why I would love to see a version of this movie where the, the whole Sophie and Charlie plot is just gone. Just gone. <laughs> I just don't care about it that much. That story, the one that you're telling about, the the youthful abandon and also this sort of like twilight abandon of your older years is just like wow wow how powerful is that and that's actually the kind of riff on this letters to juliet practice that would actually be interesting rather than just mm-hmm. leaning into it and being like wow aren't letters to juliet so romantic like wow right guys just so sweet so nice <laughs> instead it's like Really diving deep into what it means to be in love and what it means to take a risk. and Well, and uh, a shout out to our friend Kate. I was talking to her about this movie and she was saying that she th- thought it would be better if the journey to find Lorenzo was just the two women, this young girl and this older girl. Mm. And then Lorenzo has a young grandson who mm. has an instant connection with Sophie, but then she goes back home. But then she's like, no, no, I had a connection with him. I need to learn from this other couple and I need to like not put it off for another 50 years. And so she goes back to Italy and like meets him again at the wedding. Yeah. Yes, Kate, that is a much better plot, especially because that that is part of what makes the ending ring so false with Sophie and Charlie is that she's like, I just thought like that I wasn't going to give up on this connection. Like I wasn't going to give up on like a true love. It's like what true love? (laughs) You had some vague chemistry with a British man. So... Really? I'm worried for Sophie. She makes, like, some kind of scary romantic choices. She got engaged to a guy she didn't care that much about. Red flag. (laughs) Yeah, I definitely don't get a happily ever after vibe from Sophie and Charlie. I feel like they're going to date across the the ocean for, I don't know, a year. It's not going to go great. Yeah, they're going to... 
they're going to both realize that uh, eh, it's kind of going to be very much in the vein of the eat, pray, love, Stella got her groove back things is that Sophie will write her book and, and everybody like, wow, that's so romantic. And then two years later, she'll write her book about the divorce and be like, just kidding. <laughs> yes. He even has a whole bit where he's like, well, I don't like New York and I don't think you like London, but like, we'll figure it out. No, you won't, like, Charlie. All, you won't figure it out. been no reference to either of you having opinions about England or America up until now, but sure, let's just throw it out there. Uh, and second of all, why would you convince me more that this is a bad idea in your final love declaration? The only other thing I'll have to say, and I say this from the bottom of my heart, we're very sorry, Melissa. Sorry, Mel. <laughs> patrons on patreon and especially our romantic leads who are so much more romantic than the leads in this movie uh, they are bob esther ian and trey uh buena suerte is that how you say yeah, you it got Eliza? it did i say it sweet um if you want to become a patreon and help us to pick a better movie next month you can go to patreon.com slash romcom killjoys you can join for as little as one dollar a month or as much as twenty dollars a month and uh get access to some fun behind the scenes stuff okay let me just flex my muscles crack my knuckles get ready here <clears throat> janelle what the fuck have you got for us this week because i need to watch or oh. read something better oh eliza I got you. I'm actually really pleased with this antidote this week. So, as I said, my favorite part of this film, far and away, is Vanessa Redgrave. And only second to Vanessa Redgrave is the performance of Franco Nero as the actual Lorenzo Bartolini. Um, What I love about the two of them together is that not only do they have incredible chemistry on screen, (laughs) but they are married in real life. And they um, have a very long history together. And in fact, their love story is even more romantic, I think than the actual one we see on the screen. They first fell in love filming the, um, the film adaptation of the musical Camelot in 1967. They had a child together. They separated. And then 35 years later, in their 60s, they got remarried. And they have been together ever since. And they worked on this film together not long after they decided to remarry. And, now that's um, romantic. I, I want to suggest... I mean... You guys, you guys. So what I want to recommend as a as an antidote to this film is to go and watch the uh, the scene from Camelot sixty seven um, where they sing the song "I Loved You Once in Silence," which is on its own a gorgeous song. But the scene in the movie, the love and the desire that they have for each other, just radiates off the screen. And there are all these moments where Vanessa Redgrave is holding Franco, um, Franco Nero's hands and she's just adoring his hands and holding his hands to her face. And then if you look at all of the promotional interviews that the two of them did together for Letters to Juliet, she's always kissing his hands. <laughs> it hasn't changed. It's the same love 50 years later. I mean, it's just incredibly, incredibly romantic. So... My antidote is to go back and watch Camelot 67 and especially the the sequence for I Loved You Once in Silence. That is beautiful. I love that. A better story to tell. So romantic. Someone just it really tell is. us that story. Uh, which I guess in some ways they sort of did with this. It was just the, the B plot that wasn't given enough love. So I was having trouble sort of figuring out what I wanted to do with an antidote. But I finally, I was just so frustrated by the useless Shakespeare framing 
uh, that I'm going in a Shakespeare direction. One, if you want a modern adaptation of a Shakespeare, I think we can all agree that 10 Things I Hate About You has got to be one of the best. That is an objective fact. Yeah. 10 Things I Hate About You, which is a modern adaptation of The Taming of the Shrew, which is a Shakespeare comedy, um, is then turned into a romantic comedy. Uh, and I think improves upon a lot of the things which, from a modern perspective, we find troubling in Taming of the Shrew. Uh, because it is a, it's a hard text to work with, as Janelle and I know, having worked with it a number of times. Yep. Um, but 10 Things I Hate About You does a really great job of not just bringing it into the modern era, but bringing it into the time in which it was made. 10 Things I Hate About You is now sort of a period piece in and of itself, but it is so right for the time. It gets all the elements of a teen sort of, you know, sex comedy, but also the elements of the Shakespeare adaptation and the elements of sort of burgeoning feminism within the teen mindset. And it's fun and the characters have excellent chemistry, unlike in this movie. Um, and I think it, it just, it, it has fun with those overt references to Shakespeare, some of which are even in 10 Things I Hate About You, a little eye roll where they were like, oh, we get it. They just quoted Shakespeare just there. But it, it does it in a way that's just so much better. <laughs> So if that's what you're looking for, go do that. If okay. you want the Romeo and Juliet love story stuff, if that's the Shakespeare that part of it that you want to like go experience, go watch Shakespeare in Love. Shakespeare in Love is a fabulous movie which understands what is magical about Romeo and Juliet. It understands the beauty and the value of the language of that play. And it takes it and it manipulates it and it plays with it in a way that is phenomenal and unlike anything else I've seen as far as actually transliterating the text into a new plot, into a new script. Um, there's, I mean, one of my favorite scenes of the movie, of which there are many, but is when they're cutting back and forth between the main couple performing Romeo and Juliet on stage and them in bed ostensibly practicing the lines, rehearsing the lines, but they're speaking them to each other as love messages and it goes back and forth of who's saying which line and in what context and it makes several of the lines which are subtly sexual much more overtly sexual and vice versa and it plays with it in a way that is just like oh you understood the text you were working with and you knew how to really bring out the richness and the fullness of it and then even within the actual plot of the story they have the queen elizabeth character say that as well say like wow this text is really amazing you know right they, it's it's very meta, but it's beautiful and wonderful, and I just want to go watch that instead of watching the schlock. There, honestly, I could go on for hours about all of the like interwoven in jokes in all of the this movie. It's so good. God, now I'm gonna okay. So now I'm gonna go watch Shakespeare and Love Eliza. This is great. That's what I'm gonna do while I work oh on my, my furniture. I think Thank I'm, you for that. I think I'm, I'm gonna go do that with the rest that. of my afternoon as well. <laughs> Golly. Golly. I guess we should just we'll I'll find an endpoint in there somewhere. Yeah, I think I think it, it was there. But. Thank you for listening to the Romcom Killjoys podcast. If you liked what you heard, be sure to follow us on Facebook and Instagram. If you'd like to support us further, you can become a patron at patreon.com slash romcom killjoys. Our theme song is Lady Slut Hitchhike Love by the band A Giant Dog, and the song you're listening to now is a cover of Baby Love by Colin Langaness. Remember, Killjoys, don't let anyone kill your joy. 
Not a rom-com. Not us. Not anyone. See you next time. Instead of breaking up, the thoughts and kissing and making up.